Welcome to Celebrate Poe. My name is George Bartley, and this is episode 182, America's Poet. As you may know, during Pride Month, I like to look at 19th century gay American writers. The main problem is that during the 19th century, there just wasn't any vocabulary available to express such feelings, despite their validity. For the next two episodes of this month, the subjects have, uh, or excuse me, for the first two episodes of this month, the subjects have largely been Fitz Green Halleck, Bayard Taylor, as well as Joseph and his friend. Not exactly widely familiar names today. But the final two episodes of this month, as well as the first episode of July, deal with Walt Whitman, frequently referred to as America's Poet. This episode deals with uh, Whitman's life and works, while the next two episodes focus in on more specific topics. Now, the title of the next episode, Call Me By Your Name, is taken from the text of a letter written by or written to Whitman by one of uh, Whitman's admirers, none other than Bram Stoker, the author of Dracula. Then the following episode after that is titled, O Captain, and deals with Peter Doyle, a man who was Whitman's love and most likely influenced some of the writer's most well-known works. Now, today's episode is about a man who actually was Poe's contemporary, although many people feel that he lived decades after Poe. In actuality, Poe was born in 1809, and Walt Whitman was born just 10 years later. But Poe died in 1849 when he was only 40, while Walt Whitman died in 1892 when he was 72. Walt Whitman was a literary giant who has been referred to as America's poet. And I hope by the end of this episode you'll understand why. Trying to uh, get your head around Walt Whitman is kind of like trying to get your head around the form and beauty of the Grand Canyon. You know you're in the presence of greatness, but there's no way to put it into words, although many people have tried. And not surprisingly, millions of pages have been written about Walt Whitman. To quote poet Ezra Pound, Walt Whitman is America. This episode concentrates on a little bit of Whitman's life story and um, mainly on material that I uh, felt was especially relevant for Pride Month. Whitman had a more expansive including everything and everyone, outlook, while Poe seemed to have attention in his work, sometimes sad, sometimes supernatural. Now, when Edgar Allan Poe was reburied in Baltimore on November the 17th, 1875, most of the literary figures of the time were invited. Writers such as Whitman, Loyal, Lowell, Longfellow, Whittier, Whittier, Bryan, and Tennyson. But of those writers, Walt Whitman was the only one of the writers to actually attend. In his classic work, Specimen Days, 
Whitman included some information from a Washington newspaper regarding Poe. Quote, The following from a report in the Washington Star of November the 16th 1875, may afford those who care for it something further of my point of view toward this interesting uh, and influence of our area. Uh, There occurred about that date in Baltimore a public reburial of Poe's remains and dedication of a monument over the grave. Now, being in Washington on a visit at the time, the old gray, as he was referred to, went over to Baltimore and, though ill from paralysis, consented to hobble up and silently take a seat on the platform, but refused to make any speech, saying, I have felt a strong impulse to come over and be here uh, today myself in memory of Poe, which I have obeyed, but not the slightest impulse to make a speech which, my dear friends, must also be obeyed. In an informal circle, however, uh, in conversation after the ceremonies, Whitman said, For a long while, and and until lately, I I had a distaste for Poe's writings. I I wanted and still still want for poetry the the clear sun shining and fresh air blowing, the strength and power of health, not of delirium, even amid the stormiest passions, with always the background of the eternal moralities. Non-complying with these requirements, Poe's genius has yet conquered a special recognition for itself, and I too have come to fully admit it and appreciate it and him. And I think the next part is especially moving. Whitman also said, In a dream I once had, I saw a vessel on the sea at midnight in a storm. It was no great full-rigged ship nor majestic steamer steering firmly through the gale, but seemed one of those superb little schooner yachts I had often seen lying anchored, rocking so jauntily in the waters around New York, or up Long Island Sound. Now flying uncontrolled with torn sails and broken spars through the wild sleet and winds and waves of the night. On the deck was a slender, slight, beautiful figure, a dim man apparently enjoying all the terror, the murk, and the dislocation of which he was the center and the victim. That figure of my lurid dream might stand for Edgar Poe his spirit, his fortunes, and his poems, themselves all lurid dreams. Yes, their styles were definitely different, but Whitman, with his expansive style, was open to everyone. Whitman certainly recognized talent and knew there was room in the world, in the literary world, for such varied figures as Edgar Allan Poe and himself. But before uh, I begin talking any more about the great Walt Whitman, I, I want to set the stage with a personal story. Now, picture this. That- that's a Golden Girls reference. I- I- I'm a little scared kid at a local fundamentalist church camp. Okay, got that? A local fundamentalist church kid. Church camp, and I'm a scared kid. 
One night, we gathered around a campfire, and we were given paper and pencil. The counselor told us to write down our most terrible, shameful sin, one that we would be too ashamed to say aloud, and throw the paper describing that terrible sin into the fire. I didn't have to think very long and nervously wrote down, quote, going into the bathroom and touching my pee, unquote. I couldn't write down the rest of the word as though though God would be embarrassed and couldn't handle it. I guess it was my version, although on a much smaller scale, of the sin that dares not speak its name. It was as though my hang-ups were keeping me from having the vocabulary. Now, you might think, what does this have to do with Walt Whitman? Well, Walt Whitman faced a similar attitude from much of the public around him throughout his life. He wrote positively about parts of the body, our feelings, and emotions that puritanical society refused to even acknowledge. Words and actions that uh, were just not even part of society's vocabulary. Now, let's start here with uh, Walt Whitman's life, and I think this might be a little bit clearer. Walt Whitman was born in West Hills, New York, and was the second of nine children. His family was forced to move to a series of homes in Brooklyn when he was four years old. Uh, You see, his father had made some bad investments, and the family fell on hard times. Whitman looked uh, back on his childhood as basically unhappy because it seemed that the family was always poor and had difficulty just getting by. Well, uh, Whitman later did comment on one happy moment when he was lifted in the air and kissed on the cheek by the Marquis de Lafayette when the French military leader visited Brooklyn on July the 4th 1825. To put this into perspective, at least time-wise, this was the same visit by Lafayette to America when the young Edgar Allan Poe saw the general in Richmond, and Poe was serving as a member of the junior cadets. In 1835, now remember, Whitman was just 16, he moved to New York City to work as a printer. He tried to find more work, but couldn't, partially because of a severe fire in the publishing and printing district, and partially due to a general collapse in the economy leading up to the Panic of 1837. So Whitman rejoined his family, now living in Long Island, and taught at various schools for several years. Then after trying his hand at teaching several times, Whitman went back to Huntington, New York, to establish his own newspaper. Then he sold the newspaper after 10 months. So you can see that Whitman had quite a few jobs with no real success, at least at first. One story, for which there is no definite proof, tells of him having to leave a teaching job in New York in 1840. A local preacher called him a sodomite, and it was said that Whitman was literally tarred and feathered. Many future biographers, however, have said that this was a myth. Whitman later wrote an essay, Heart, Music, and Art Music, about the American music he had heard in New York. 
Now, the reason I'm pointing this out is this essay was reprinted as art singing and heart singing in the Broadway Journal on November the 29th. And the main reason we remember its publication was that the editor of that magazine was none other than Edgar Allan Poe. Poe's editorial footnote acknowledged Whitman's lack of scientific knowledge of music, yet Poe noted uh, that he agreed with our correspondent throughout. Shortly after the article was published, Poe and Whitman actually met for the first and only time. I'd like to say that something eventful happened during the meeting with such varied personalities as Poe and Whitman, but the actual purpose of the meeting was for Whitman to collect uh, his fee for the article. Basically, rather humdrum. In Specimen Days, Whitman notes that he had a distinct and pleasing remembrance of Poe as a kind but jaded man. Whitman also used his own money to pay for the printing and publication of a book of his poetry called Leaves of Grass. With this book, Whitman tried to reach out to the common person with an American epic. He continued expanding and revising Leaves of Grass right up until his death in 1892. I'm not going to make a big deal out of the various revisions. That could really complicate the narrative, but I'm going to take one poem, We Two Boys Together Clinging, and show the two versions that Whitman wrote. Now, in all versions of Leaves of Grass, with the exception of the 1860 edition, Whitman wrote, We two boys together clinging, on the other never leaving, up and down the roads going, north and south, excursions making, power enjoying, elbows stretching, fingers clutching, armed and fearless, eating, drinking, sleeping, loving, no law less than ourselves, owning, sailing, soldiering, thieving, threatening, misers, menials, priests alarming, air breathing, water drinking, on the turf or on the sea beach dancing, cities wrenching, ease scorning, statues mocking, feebleness chastening, fulfilling our forays. Now, I would interpret that as as basically two dudes who are good friends traveling together and experiencing the joys of the road. It, it It might seem somewhat homoerotic, but longing emotions do not play a part at all. In the 1860 edition only, this version of We Two Boys Clinging was published, and, and I want to thank Juan A. Herraro Brazos for this version of the poem uh, in his book, Walt Whitman's Mystical Ethics of Comradeship. Now, the 1860 version of We Two Boys Clinging is as follows. Hours continuing long, sore and heavy-hearted, Hours of dusk, when I withdraw to a loathsome and unfrequented spot, seating myself, leaning my face in my hands. Hours sleepless, deep in the night, when I go forth speeding swiftly the country roads, or through the city streets, or pacing miles and miles, stifling plaintive cries. Hours discouraged, distracted, for the one I, I cannot content myself without, soon as I saw him content himself without me. Hours when I am forgotten, 
oh, weeks and months are passing, but I believe I, I, I am never to forget sullen and suffering hours. I am ashamed, but it is useless. I, I am what I am. Hours of my torment. I wonder if other men have, have, have ever had the like out of the like feelings. Is there even one other like me, distracted, his friend, his lover lost to him? Is he too as I am now? Does he still rise in the morning dejected, thinking who was lost to him, and at night awakening, thinking who was lost? I personally feel this version of the poem expresses the loneliness of a lover and has really nothing to do with joy. And phrases like, I am what I am, and is there ever even one another like me, sound like the thoughts of a lonely and confused person who feels that there's no one out there who understands. Brazos points out that Whitman may have felt this version of the poem was too intimate and the revelation too compromising that it could easily lead to the admission of something that Whitman would never dare confess, at least in writing. By far, by far the most controversial of Whitman's works were the Calamus poems, a cluster of poems in Leaves of Grass. And I'll be talking a lot more about these later, too. But, excuse me, according to Whitman, these poems celebrate and promote the manly love of comrades. Like most of the poems in Leaves of Grass, the Calamus poems were constantly edited, possibly in an attempt to make them more attractive or acceptable to a wider audience. Now, you might be asking, with good reason, why does Whitman call them the Calamus poems? Well, the Calamus root, or sweet flag, is a marsh-growing plant. Think of it as a cattail, but the growth is more phallic in appearance. The Calamus has a mythological association with failed male same-sex love and with writing. And while much of Whitman was upsetting to some people of his era, he, uh, the Calamus poems were especially shocking to the vast majority of his readers. Uh, that is, readers who knew or had an idea of what he was, he was talking about. Like this poem. To a stranger. Passing stranger, you do not know how longingly I look upon you. You must be he I was seeking, or she I was seeking. It comes to me as of a dream. I have somewhere surely lived a life of joy with you. All is recalled as we flit by each other, fluid, affectionate, chaste, matured. You grew up with me. You were a boy with me or a girl with me. I ate with you and slept with you. Your body has become not yours only, nor left my body mine only. You give me the pleasure of your eyes, face, flesh, as we pass you take of my beard, breast, hands in return. And I, I am not to speak to you. I am to think of you when I sit alone or wake at night alone. I am to wait. I, I do not doubt I, I am to meet you again. I am to see to it that I do not lose you. 
In Song of Myself, Whitman also wrote, I am the poet of the body, and I am the poet of the soul. The pleasures of heaven are with me, and the pains of hell are with me. The first I graft and increase upon myself. The latter I translate into a new tongue. I am the poet of the woman, the same as the man, and I say it is as, it is as great to be a woman as to be a man. And I say there is nothing greater than the mother of men. I chant the chant of dilation or pride. We have had ducking and deprecating about enough. I show that size is only development. Have you outstripped the rest? Are you the president? It is a trifle. They will more than arrive there, everyone, and still pass on. I am he that walks with the tender and growing night. I call to the earth and sea, half held by the night. Press close, bare-bosomed night. Press close, magnetic, nourishing night. Night of south winds, rage of the large few stars, still nodding night, mad, naked, summer night. Smile, O voluptuous, cold-breathed earth. Smile, O voluptuous, cool-breathed earth, earth of the slumbering and liquid trees, earth of departed sunset, earth of the mountains, misty top, earth of the vitreous pour of the full moon, just tinged with blue, earth of shine and dark, modeling the tide of the river, earth of the limpid gray of clouds, brighter and clearer for my sake, far-swooping, elbowed earth, rich, apple-blossomed earth, smile, for your lover comes. Prodigal, you have given me love, therefore I to you give love, O oh, unspeakable, passionate love. And finally, well, if you take this literally, and many people did, uh, then this section is, is really hot, or, or, or should I say, very close to explicit. I believe in my soul, the other, uh, I, I must not abase itself to you, and you must not be abased to the other. Loaf with me on the grass, lose the stop from your throat. Not words, nor music, or rhyme I want, nor custom or lecture, not even the best, only the lull I like, the hum of your valved voice. I mind how we lay in June, such a transparent summer morning, how you settled your head athwart my hips and gently turned over upon me and parted the shirt from my bosom bone and plunged your tongue to my bare-stripped heart and reached till you felt my beard and reached till you held my feet. Well, readers were outraged that, that someone would publish anything so decent, anything so indecent. Let me read that again. I believe in you, my soul. The other, I must not abase itself to you, and you must not be abased to the other. Loaf with me on the grass. Lose the stop from your throat. Not words, not music, or rhyme I want. Not custom or lecture, not even the best. Only the law I like, the hum of your valved voice. I mind how we lay in June, such a transparent summer morning. 
how you settled your head athwart my hips and gently turned over upon me and patted the shirt from my bosom bone and plunged your tongue to my bare-stripped heart and reached till you felt my beard and reached till you held my feet. To be honest, the first time I read that, I didn't visualize anything really shopping. Maybe anything really shocking. Maybe I'm kind of dense. Kind of reminds me of a country joke my father used to tell. A a lady called the police because she said that a man took off his clothes at 9 o'clock every night. She said this was in front of his open window across the street from her apartment, and she was outraged. Well, when the policeman came the next night at 9 o'clock, he looked up at the window and said, "Uh, Lady, I don't see anything. And uh, the old lady said, Well, of course you don't. You have to stand on this chair and look through the window through these binoculars. Well, like so much of uh, Whitman's readers, uh, some were so puritanical in their actions and so obsessed with even the idea of a bare body part that they went out of their way to see or imagine something that they considered indecent. Well, Uh, This is something that they really wouldn't have imagined if they weren't so secretly obsessed with sex. In other words, often Whitman's critical public could read a section like, reached till you felt my beard and reached till you held my feet and think, now, if he's holding somebody's beard with one hand and someone's feet with the other hand, then this man would be in a position to have his face free to go go down, oh, 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 it's just too awful to think of. I I found it really interesting, and, and, uh, uh, well, this was a somewhat off-the-wall source called Walt Whitman's Anomaly, and this was online, and it said on the title page that the sale of this book is restricted to members of the legal and medical professions. Uh, the publication was printed in 1913, and the copy I saw online was digitized by Microsoft and is currently in the library of the University of Toronto. It shows how some influential uh, people of the time felt about the character of Walt Whitman, a genius who we now regard as America's poetry. Uh, who we now regard as America's poet. I'm going to briefly, and I mean very briefly, summarize the six chapters of the book. The introduction can be summarized by this quote from a well-known and correspondent of the poet who who is never named. Uh, The real psychology of Walt Whitman would be enormously interesting. I think the keynote to it would be found a staggering ignorance or perhaps willful non-perception of the real physical conditions of his nature. But the truth about him... The innermost truth escapes from almost every page for those who can read. Now, in the second chapter, the author takes several pages or passages from Leaves of Grass and points out uh, how those passages make for an investigation. And an example passage is, When I wandered alone over the beach and undressing, bathed, laughed with the cool waters and saw the sun rise, and when I thought how my dear friend, my lover, was on his way coming, oh, then I was happy, 
Then each breath tasted sweeter, and all that day my food nourished me more, and the beautiful day passed. And the next came with equal joy, and with the next an evening came my friend. Now the third chapter deals with what it calls Whitman's femininity. Now get this. It says, uh, Whitman never smoked, did not like sports, enjoyed preparing food. How shocking. Obeyed specific directions when cooking. Oh my golly. And served as a male nurse and did not enjoy war. In other words, the rationale used by the gentleman in what is supposed to be a document dealing with a sensitive matter comes across as stupid gossip. Or, to paraphrase Shakespeare, a tale told by idiots full of sound and fury and signifying nothing. In the fourth chapter, the writer uses Whitman's choice of friends as proof of, well, the, the uh, author uh, of this, um, this document is too reticent to say. He also uses Whitman's choice of words, words which could mean anything, as proof that Whitman is a bad influence. The fifth chapter just talks in circles and basically says nothing. The final chapter ends with, It must be admitted that Walt Whitman was homosexual. The conclusion is as sound as an anvil. I find it interesting that even as late as the early 20th century, a group of supposed learned lawyers could engage in some pretty heavy-duty character assassination based on hearsay and prejudicial opinions. But then, again, we still have some of those prejudicial opinions with us. Just look at the Supreme Court. Now, a frequent question among scholars is, was Whitman ever involved in a same-sex relationship? Most experts believe that at the very least, Peter Doyle, a young bus conductor, uh, was one of the men with whom Whitman was believed to have had an intimate relationship. And I'll be going into this in a lot more in in, uh, future episodes. In What uh, What is the Grass by Mark Doty, the author writes that when Whitman and Doyle met, Doyle said, We were familiar at once. I put my hand on his knee. We understood. He, He did not get out at the end of the trip. In fact, he went all the way back with me. In his notebooks, Walt Whitman was so reticent to write down Peter Doyle's name that he used the code 16.4, P, D being the 16th and 14th, or 16th and 4th letters of the alphabet, kind of like me writing down, playing with P. Uh, but uh, I'm, I'm surprised... Uh, now that I I just didn't make up some kind of code. Well, anyway, while there's still intense debate, biographers usually described Whitman as either homosexual or bisexual in his feelings and attractions. And I could spend several podcast episodes dealing with this issue. Unfortunately, we may never know completely because Whitman was always changing pronouns and phrases in his works. He knew all too well that to be open about his sexuality during his lifetime would have been literary suicide. 
Now, a word about Rufus Griswold. He'll, he is going to play quite a part in literature of the 19th century, and uh, it is interesting that he was the only critic to remark on Whitman's presumed sexual activity. Griswold was a failed preacher and apparently highly influential in literary circles. Very opinionated and judgmental, he could make or break you, uh, he suggested Whitman was guilty of that horrible sin not to be mentioned among Christians. This podcast will cover in more detail later some of the misinformation about Edgar Allan Poe that started with Griswold. Much of what we know, or think we know about Poe, is based on Rufus Griswold's bitter and even false remembrances of the writer, like uh, having your worst enemy as your literary executor, which is precisely what Poe did somehow in uh, having Rufus Griswold as his literary executor, as well as his biographer. This Rufus Griswold who I hope I have convinced you was bad news, wrote the following in his highly judgmental review of the 1855 edition of Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. We have found it impossible to convey any, even the most faint idea of style and contents, and of our disgust and detestation of them without employing language that cannot be pleasing to ears polite but it does seem that someone should, under circumstances like these, undertake a most disagreeable yet stern duty. The records of crime show that many monsters have gone on in impunity because the exposure of their vileness was attended with too great indelicacy. Peccatum elude horribly inter Christianos non nonanandum. I wonder how many of Griswold's readers understood the Latin he used or what he was referring to. I know I had to look it up. Uh, but uh, And uh, I doubt that your average person in the 19th century had Internet access. But the Latin uh, uh, that uh, Griswold did use uh, was from Blackstone's 1811 Commentaries on the Laws of England. What a mouthful and indicates that the crime of sodomy is that sin, or indicates that the crime of sodomy is that sin which cannot be named among Christians. I mean, that doesn't say anything about sodomy, but that's what Griswold read into it. Now, in 1882, Oscar Wilde and Walt Whitman actually met. Now, Oscar Wilde at the time was only 27 years old and on his first American tour. He specifically sought out the 62-year-old Walt Whitman. Wilde wanted to see Whitman because the British edition of Leaves of Grass at that time omitted some of the overtly sexual poems. Not surprisingly, Leaves of Grass had become a sensation among readers of poetry, freethinkers, and a subculture of gay men who were beginning to develop a form of pride in their recently recognized sexual orientation. When Walt Whitman learned that an English writer wanted to meet with him, well, he probably expected a tedious appointment with a fawning admirer. The story is told that when Wilde arrived, 
Whitman privately asked his assistant to leave them and then return in a half an hour to show Mr. Wilde to the door. But when a half an hour had passed and Whitman's assistant appeared, Whitman told him to go ahead and take the afternoon off, that his services would not be needed. Whitman and Wilde proceeded upstairs to continue a private visit that lasted over several hours. And we don't know exactly what happened, but uh, we do know that he said, he is a fine, large, handsome youngster, the poet wrote in the letter to his friend, and he had the good sense to take a great fancy to me. With his encyclopedic style of listing group after group, well, if, if uh, Walt Whitman were alive today, I'm sure he'd write about all kinds of people, all classes and races and genders and sexual orientations, because the idea uh, behind his work is that the fate of each of us is tied to the essence of democracy. Uh, I, I have barely just begun to talk about Walt Whitman, and I'm going to be talking a great deal more about him in uh, the next two episodes. Uh, but I, I want to say, uh, as in way of conclusion for this episode, uh, that I think one of the best musical expressions of Walt Whitman's philosophy uh, is the showcase finale of the movie Fame from 1980. Now stick with me. The song, I Sing the Body Electric, is a fusion of gospel, rock, dance, and orchestra. I put the URL to the song on YouTube at the top of my website on my transcript of the episode, as well as the show notes. Of course, the finale makes a bit more sense if you've seen the movie Fame, and I highly recommend Fame. But it is a moving experience that creeps up on you, even, even, even if you just watch the clip. Uh, I saw the movie when it came out in 1980, and I still get chills all over when I watch the clip of I Sing the Body Electric, words directly from Walt Whitman. Now, this afternoon, I was picking out a T-shirt to wear, and I saw an old shirt from D.C. Pride. My first reaction was, now, this is fine for a progressive area like DuPont Circle in Washington, D.C., but not for a walk to the drugstore. Uh, the thought went through my head, what will people think? Then I realized my thoughts were basically that of the scared little kid seated around a campfire. But one thing doing this podcast has taught me is that Walt Whitman, Bayard Taylor, and the thousands of people who suffered did it so basically I could be honest with myself and with others. And honesty and self-acceptance that is at the center of Pride Month. My original intentions uh, were to do a podcast solely about the great Walt Whitman and the optimistic spirit connected with uh, Pride Month. But as I write this, uh, much of the news is commenting on the fact that Roe versus Wade was abolished one year ago, an issue uh, that has had a, a detrimental effect on women's health. And I'm going somewhere with this. Some have even said that members of the Supreme Court have set their sights on banning contraception and marriage equality. I know that some say it might not be that bad, 
But to quote the great Mayu Angelou, Mayu Angelou, when someone shows you who they are, believe them. When a court makes a horrifying decision, such as a ban on abortion, we're all hurt. You personally might not belong to a group that is directly affected, but no one can ignore the fact that our freedom is being taken away. When the freedoms of any group is taken away, it affects us all. To quote Bertolt Breck, inspired by Emil Gustav Frederick Martin Niemer, first of all, they came to take the gypsies, and I was happy because they pilfered. Then they came to take the Jews, and I said nothing because they were unpleasant to me. Then they came to take homosexuals, and I was relieved because they were annoying me. Then they came to take the communists, and I said nothing because I was not a communist. One day they came to take me, and there was nobody left to protest. Now, the next episode of Celebrate Poe deals with a fascinating letter that Walt Whitman received from Bram Stoker, the author of Dracula. This episode, Call Me By Your Name, has to be one of the most unusual episodes that Celebrate Poe has ever broadcast. Sources include Glances Backward, an anthology of American homosexual writing, 1830 to 1920, What is the Grass by Mark Doty, Making Your Own Days, The Pleasures of Reading and Writing Poetry by Kenneth Cock, Leaves of Grass by Walt Whitman, The Cambridge Companion to Walt Whitman by Ezra Greenspan, A Critical Companion to Walt Whitman by Harold Bloom, Intimate with Walt Whitman from Whitman's Conversations with Horace Traubel, 1882-1892, Walt Whitman's Mystical Ethics of Comradeship, Homosexuality and the Marginality of Friendship at the Crossroads of Modernity by Juan A. Herrero Brazos, The Pologue, A Documentary Life of Edgar Allan Poe by Dwight R. Thomas and David K. Jackson, Edgar Allan Poe, The Man by Mary E. Phillips, and The Home Life of Edgar Allan Poe by Susan Archer Talley Weiss. Thank you for listening to Celebrate Poe.